0: Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Fiona Reynolds. Fiona Reynolds is an experienced board director, advisor, and CEO in global finance, sustainability, ESG, and pension fund governance. Most notably, she was the CEO of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, which has close to 5,000 signatories from 80 countries with approximately $100 trillion in assets under management. Welcome, Fiona, to the Climate Finance Podcast. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. How are you doing today in Australia?
1: Well, thanks for having me. Well, I'm sitting here in Australia looking out at the sunshine. I live in Sydney, so all is well in the world at the moment.
0: Thank you. I was reading about your career, and it's very interesting, and I'm very curious how it started. I know you studied public policy, and you had some significant experiences in Australia before you joined UNPRI. Could you please tell us more about it?
1: Sure. So I started working in the Australian superannuation or pensions industry in 1994. Now, compulsory superannuation or workers adding to their pensions only began in Australia in 1992. And before this, most working Australians lived on a fairly basic age pension when they retire. So it was only people who really worked in government or who were in very senior management roles in big corporates who had some sort of private pension. And so the fight for a pension for all, and it was a fight, was undertaken really by the union movement in the 80s. And it was finally introduced by a Labour government, So they mandated that starting at 3% and then moving, which is till now, which is 10.5%, and then moving up to 12% of your wage, went into a superannuation or pension fund. And superannuation in Australia isn't necessarily just managed in some big sort of mutual fund manager. The funds are managed in a way that I think is quite different. There's a mixture of employee and employee representatives. So like a mutual, if you like. So at an early stage, I really, therefore, understood the democratisation of capital and that money should really work for the many and not just for the few, which I think before superannuation, that's what it was doing. Now, a lot of Australians can retire in a way that ensures that they have a dignified retirement. Now. As time went by and the pool of capital started growing in those pension funds, I also really understood that capital should be productive, that it can invest in solutions, that it really was our, the people's money, and it should be invested in ways that didn't harm us or the world that we lived in. So this made me really have a growing interest in ESG issues. Because I think that ESG issues really fit with pension funds in in particular, because you're thinking about a long-term investment horizon. Because if you think about something like climate change, it's an issue that is multi-generational that needs to be solved for. And pension fund money is invested over the long term. And so therefore, those that are managing that money really need to be looking out at long term. Term risks. So it's really with the rise and the growth of pension funds and long term investors across the world, because Australia is not the only country with a pension system, many do, that we have also seen the rise of responsible investment or ESG investing. Bringing the capital and the long term together is the important part. So then I decided that if I really wanted to work in the ESG space, that I would need to move overseas because there wasn't a lot happening in Australia. There was a little bit, but not a lot. And then the role came up at the PRI, which was based in London and is still based in London. So I went there and stayed there for nine and a half years, and then I returned to Australia a year ago.
0: Welcome back to Australia, and thank you for that really good introduction. I like the fact that you added some historical context, especially with unions and democratization of capital. Could you give a brief introduction of UNPRI? Before you joined, especially the, the formation part and between 2006 and 2013 before you joined.
1: Sure. So I was fortunate that I did have some involvement in The early stages of PRI before I actually joined as well, because one of the things was that PRI needed to make sure that people would become signatory. And I ran an association for superannuation funds in Australia. And so we encouraged our members to look at the principles and and get engaged in them. PRI was formed out of the UN, out of the UN Global Compact and UNEPFI. And it was really about bringing sustainability issues to capital markets. So, at this stage, the UN Global Compact, which really is for business, so an umbrella group for business on sustainability issues, was in place. And so was Unipify. Unipify mainly looks at banks and insurance companies. But there was a realization that the investors were missing. And investors had a key role to play as they're shareholders of companies and they could influence them through stewardship. They have to think long term and invest long term. So, therefore, the PRI was created. So then Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, invited a group of individuals, investors together to work on what became the six principles. And then he encouraged people to implement the principles. In the early stages, when the principles were being put together, I'm not sure that it was necessarily envisaged that the PRI would become a big organisation like it is today, but once the principles were in place, then people didn't know, well, how do you do this work? What do you do to integrate ESG factors? How do you go about it? And so therefore, the PRI was formed to be able to work with signatories to develop best practice.
0: You mentioned how at that point in time, you didn't know it would be this big with that many signatories, but as more and more signatories joined, how was their interaction or their commitment towards PRI, especially with accepting the six principles? And how did they implement their commitment or track their commitment?
1: Yeah. So look, in the very early days, the PRI was lucky that there was a small but committed group across the globe, just a couple of hundred signatories who were willing to be part of the PRI and to support it and to really work out what the next stages were. How do we integrate across asset classes? How did we build best practice? How did we actually do all of this? How did we make sure that we got the right data and the right tools? So that was very much how things kicked off. Then it was really about we had to grow the base and of people who were doing this. And so When I came along, it was very much about how do we convince people that ESG factors were an investment issue? It seems strange to say this now, but people didn't consider that ESG issues were actually material investment issues. So we had to really build the case for that. So, I mean, as institutional investors, people committed to the six principles, which are really about incorporating ESG factors into your investment process, being active owners of the investments that you hold, making sure that you get good disclosures, promoting the principles. Principle four is about actually promoting the principles within the investment industry. And a lot of signatories, existing signatories did that. And asset owners who then employed investment managers to manage money for them, started asking their investment managers to be signatories to the PRI, to say, we want you to do this. And part of the principles is also about working together and reporting on progress as well. And so they're really the things that people are asked to do. The principles, given that they're called principles, are very principles-based. They're not overly prescriptive. So that And they were deliberately designed to be so because there's different rules and regulations in different countries. Countries are at different stages of their development, for example, around ESG factors. And so that was the commitment. And as I said, from very small, humble beginnings with only a couple of hundred committed signatories. Now we look at what has grown today, and really responsible investment has gone from being seen as a very niche issue to a mainstream issue and from a nice to have to a must
0: have. Thank you for that. And liked uh, how you mentioned, especially at the early stage, all the signatories helping out with providing best case studies and so on. To the listeners out there, I recommend checking out the UNPR website. There's so much information. You can spend hours and days reading all that's available. What well, I liked reading about was the introduction of responsible investment and there were like these five approaches, integration, screening, thematic, investing, engagement, and proxy voting. And you mentioned the best practices and case studies. Are there any case studies that come to mind that investors or researchers listening to this podcast should be aware of as they start their learning journey about responsible investment?
1: Well, thank you for mentioning the website because I do think the website is it has an absolutely wealth of information. I would say sometimes it's difficult to have to troll through it. All this there is so much and it's all open source as well. So that's a great thing. A couple of case studies that come to mind really around how you influence companies. So if I think about a recent example being engine number one. So this was a campaign that happened at Exxon. So for years and years and years, Pairi Signatories and other investors, mainly Pairi Signatories, had really been working with the big fossil fuel companies in the United States, Exxon, Chevron, et cetera, about changing the way they operated around thinking about climate change. And in the early stages were really pretty much ignored, I'd say. And so after years and years of engaging I mean, you have to be able to escalate things because if the company's not listening, then what do you do? You can make the choice to not invest in that company, but then you are no longer a shareholder and you no longer have any ability to influence them. So sometimes it's better to stay as a shareholder and to keep engaging. So eventually over years and years and years again of continued engagement and getting nowhere, a group of pension funds with Engine number 1, who's an activist investor leading, they basically decided that the only way that they could take further action was to remove a number of the board members and to vote on board members who actually they felt had climate experience and could bring the reforms in that were needed at that organisation. And I think that was a very powerful message as board members of an organization. If you don't take your fiduciary duty and your responsibilities seriously, then we as the shareholders will seek to remove you from the board. So I thought that was very powerful. I also think there's a few other things. Well, there's so many that come to mind, but ones that are powerful that stand out in my mind. A couple of years ago, there was a huge disaster in Bramadino in Brazil. And this happened in a mining area where the tailings weren't stored properly and thousands of people were killed in this disaster. It was really shocking. So again, the investors really came together and said, Well, we're investors in this company, but what is it that we that we can do? So they then got together with the mining industry to say we, we want to create new standards. We actually want to understand where all the tailings dams are because, shockingly, a lot of these companies and regions didn't even know where these tailings dams were. They'd been left and abandoned for decades. But that doesn't mean there still couldn't have been a disaster. So they worked on new standards, got the mapping done, and then worked on a new standard for how tailings dams had to be stored And I think that's a really significant change that wouldn't have come about without the responsible investment community. Equally, I've seen things in Australia. One thing that was significant for me and also shows the power of global investors. So a number of years ago, Rio Tinto, big mining company, blew up a 46,000-year-old Aboriginal site. It was destroyed, gone forever. Obviously, the Indigenous people in the country were outraged about what had happened, as was the rest of the Australian population. Global coalition of investors who were shareholders in Rio really, again, was horrified. And as the major shareholders got together and spoke to Rio and talked about these issues, and then came a big changes about consultation with the Indigenous owners of the land and about the expectations of shareholders about that engagement and that the sacred sites would not be ever again blown up and gone forever. And then if I move into a, another sort of issue about tackling modern slavery and human trafficking, which is a, a shocking issue, there's over 40 million people in the world today in some form of modern slavery and human trafficking. 71% of those are women and girls. And so pension funds have really taken this issue on because if you think about it from an investment point of view, a lot of the modern slavery issues happen down supply chains for multinational companies and really started to say, well, we don't want to be invested in modern slavery. We want you as corporations that we're invested in to be able to show us how you go about thinking about your supply chains and screening for these issues and understanding these issues so there's so many ways that investors really do influence companies a lot of the things that i've just talked about were really around screening and, how, and engagement and and voting but also it's about integration so how do you think about esg issues and what are the ways in the different investments that you've got that you can influence changes in in behaviour. And that's what I always have really enjoyed about the space about that working with companies to change the way that they operate.
0: I think you gave a very thorough list of examples. And what I appreciated, you had an American example, a Brazilian example, Australian example, and a global example regarding modern slavery. Speaking of all these different countries, I'm interested and curious to learn about how the signatories of UN PRI can have an influence on government policy. When I check the website, I see there is some links about the SEC, ESG disclosures, EU taxonomy, and so on. Appreciate to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, so over the years, PRI decided that one of the ways that it could be effective and that investors could be effective was to start doing more work around public policy, because otherwise what was happening was that policymakers were hearing a lot from all of those who didn't want these changes to happen, who didn't want responsible investment, who didn't want regulation. It needed to hear the voices who were on alternate voice saying, well, no, as shareholders, we do think we need to tackle climate change. We do want regulations around pollution. We do want better disclosures from corporations. So that's how the policy sort of really evolved for that need. And then over the years, PowerEye really grown its policy area into many different countries. It works a lot around things like regulation, disclosure, data, issues like that where it spends most of its time and I think it brings together a very large coalition of investors and so therefore it has a significant say. It's not the only voice that's listened to but it's one of those voices and we need more of the positive voices being louder rather than those that are lobbying against change. We also launched a big research program called the Inevitable Policy Response, and that really looks at how if investors don't get in front of these issues and don't get ahead of the issues, that around the world, that policies were going to change, and we see policies changing around the world, and that... Investors were going to be then forced into change rather than trying to lead into change. And so it's a very big research project that goes into different areas, different asset classes, and really looks about, as it's called, the inevitable policy response because policy is going to change. It is changing. So embrace it, get in front of it, be part of the change. Don't wait to be hit by a truck by it. It's what it's all about. But it's very research-based, very credible data and work that's done, which, I again, I would encourage everybody to look at and use the information that's there.
0: So for your 9.5 or 10 years of work at UNPRI and your tremendous work in Australia beforehand, I'd like to learn about the leadership challenges and accomplishments you faced or you undertook when you were at UNPRI especially those that you're the most proud of? Well, I think that one
1: of the biggest challenges in the early days of responsible investment is that people didn't take it seriously. So you'd try to talk about these things and people would just think that you were some crazy lefty tree hugger, really. They just did not see this as an investment issue. It was quite shocking. So what we had to do in the early days is we had a small, there was only a small team at the PRI back then. So we would go anywhere, anytime to talk to the investment community, the business community about why shareholders cared about these issues. And in the early days, it would often be if there was an investment conference on, we might get the last breakout session on a Friday afternoon when no one was going to be there sort of thing. And you'd have 10 people in the room. By the time I left the, left the PRI, I don't know how many keynote presentations I was asked to do at big conferences. So things changed. But so to me, when I went to the PRI, I really saw that the role, well, my role was to mainstream responsible investment. And I, I don't think I'm the obviously the only person who was part of that. But I think the PRI played a big role during the time that I was there in doing that. But there's a few things that I'm also particularly proud of. So when I started working at the PRI, investors weren't thinking a lot about climate change, I've got to say. There was a few, but not many. So we launched what was then called the Montreal Carbon Pledge. It was a long time ago now. And it was about investors having to take the step to measure their carbon footprint. But from there, because once you've measured your carbon footprint and you've understood how much carbon is in your portfolio... Well, then you have to do something about it. So from doing this, Kelper's, one of the biggest pension funds in the world, realised that of all of its 8,000 plus stocks, there are 100 stocks that accounted for more than half of the carbon in its portfolio. So what we then did is get together with other investors and we launched what was called Climate Action 100+. So it's the biggest ever engagement that's happened between shareholders and businesses, and it's engaged with them for them to set net zero commitments, to be able to measure them, report on them. And I think it's had a significant impact. And then from there, we launched their net zero asset owner alliance, which I think is the most significant out of the net zero commitments in the investment community, which is investors themselves setting a net zero target, not just asking companies to, and to, again, to be able to measure that, to demonstrate, to report against it. And then I also tried to do a lot of work on bringing the S into ESG because I really felt that that was something that was a bit left behind. We did all of this great work on climate, which was fantastic. ESG's got three letters. It's got the E, the S and the G. And the S is often the one squeezed in the middle that's forgotten about. So I tried to do a lot of work on human rights and labor rights and modern slavery and human trafficking as well.
0: Awesome. So I'd like to move on to a special team. you mentioned earlier that you're interested on the S of the ESG. And today, at least in my time zone, today is International Women's Day. So happy Women's Day, International Women's Day to you, Fiona. I have a series of questions. What is the significance, role and importance of women in the progression of ESG, in your opinion? This could be KPIs or any particular case studies and or uh, S, social factors that you take into account.
1: Yeah. So, well, happy International Women's Day to everybody. Women's Day events yesterday, which was lovely. Look, I think that if we think about the development of the ESG space, that a lot of women have played a prominent role. Women have really been champions of sustainability in the investment space. One of the things when I, I found when I first went to the first responsible investment conference that I ever went to One of the shocks to me was how many women there were and how many young women. This was just an area that women were really attracted to, I think, because they really cared about these issues. I'm not saying men didn't, but there was just a lot of women. There still are a lot of women in this space. You will see a lot of women who run organisations in responsible investment, who head up responsible investment teams. So I think that women did a lot of the heavy lifting and in the early days of responsible investment... This wasn't a mainstream investment issue. It wasn't a well-paid investment management role like it is today. It was a lot in the not-for-profit space. It wasn't well-paid. There weren't resources. It was hard work because no one, the mainstream investors didn't want to believe it, and we were just sort of pushed aside, all of those sorts of things. But women are resilient. They just keep going. So I think women have played a very significant role role in responsible investment and continue to do that. I'm not saying that men don't think about the future or they don't think about their children or anything like that. Of course they do. But I do think women have a particular lens about thinking about the future of the world, the planet, the world that their children are going to inhabit and live in, and all of those sorts of of issues. And so when they want to work in the investment space, this is obviously something that they're naturally attracted
0: to. Regarding the S, you mentioned, for example, slavery as a key focus, but there's also board diversity, there's working conditions, etc.
1: Yeah, so sure. So women in the industry have done a lot of work about making sure that the issue of getting women into senior executive positions and women on boards were taken seriously. And that, again, that this is working with governments on public policy to promote women being on boards. Or in some countries, there's been targets put in place for women to be on boards for more diversity within the workplace for understanding that better decisions are made in companies when there is diversity around the board table, when there's diversity in senior positions. We're now starting to see big shifts in this sort of thinking. We're now starting to see many more women on boards and in senior positions, but we're not there yet. So we need to make sure that we continue to not forget that that women still aren't 50% in any stretch of the imagination when it comes to CEO or chair of board roles or anything like that, much less actually just being on the board. And then, of course, it doesn't stop there just about women. It's also about diversity, inclusion of others. And one of the things that was important to me and why I was very interested in the issues to do with modern slavery and human trafficking, for example, is it's one thing to get very well-educated people in developed countries, women, onto boards and into senior positions. That's important. But we can't forget about women in developing countries who are in much worse positions than we are? And how are we doing something for them? And as I said before, 71% of those people who are in some form of modern slavery, human trafficking are women and girls. So we also as women have a responsibility to make sure that we look around the world at issues about how we improve women's lives. It's not just enough to stop at Thinking and patting ourselves on the back for getting a few more women on a board in the US or the UK or something like that. Again, not that that's not important, but we need to look beyond our own borders and issues as well.
0: I really appreciate your global perspective. The last question for International Women's Day is apart from yourself, who are the best female role models in ESG and sustainable finance? that you believe we should be aware of?
1: Oh, sure. So there's so many. I'll just name a few. I'm sure I'll leave many out, but I'll just name a few. So one of them is my friend and colleague, Louise Davidson, who runs the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, is a stewardship group for engaging with companies around ESG issues that's focused in Australia. The other is Sharon Burrow, who just finished her term as Secretary of the IT UC, which is the International Trade Union Congress. I worked with Sharon quite a bit when I was at the PRI and she really thought when we were thinking about climate issues, we did a lot of work together on the social issues of the climate transition. So we were thinking about a just transition. So how did we make sure that sort of the workers of the world in the mining companies and in regions that really relied on mining didn't get left behind because this wasn't their fault and they shouldn't be the people left to pay the price. So we wanted investors not just to think about climate metrics. Climate wasn't just about how do we reduce emissions. We also had to think about the people who are being impacted and how do we talk to companies about those issues in their transition planning. Another woman that I think is amazing is Sagarika Chatterjee. She's one of the investor directors at GFANS, which is the Global Finance Alliance on Net Zero. And so she's been instrumental in getting investors into the GFANS initiative and to really getting into the nuts and bolts about how you actually transition to Net Zero. Because it's one thing to make a Net Zero commitment, right? That's the easy bit. How you actually do it is another. So you need a lot of deep technical work done. And then my final person I'll mention is Maria Latini, who's the CEO of the FAIR initiative. So that's really an initiative that's built around agricultural practices. And she's done an amazing job in really raising the profile for investors about the treatment of animals, overuse of antibiotics in supply chains, things like that. Issues that are a bit more people can see a bit more on the fringe, but they're equally extremely important issues. We see today that there's a rise in antibiotic resistance, for example. People go to have treatment for cancer, but then they have an operation and they can't use antibiotics because they've been overused. And part of that is use within the supply chain that animals eat that we then ingest. So there's just so many interrelated issues. So I think that they're just a few of the many amazing women who work in the responsible investment space here in Australia and globally around the world.
0: I would like now to move on to your projects or your roles after you left UNPRI. I saw your LinkedIn profile. There's so many. Everything from advisory roles at different funds, whether it be infrastructure investing, fixed income, or real estate investing, and also non-profit roles. For example, director at the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute or chair of UN Global Compact Network Australia. So I'd be curious to learn about what you're working on right now.
1: So when I came back to Australia, part of the reason that I came back to Australia was around the whole COVID Issues. Australia sort of locked its citizens out for about three years. And I found that really difficult living overseas and not being able to get back into my own country. My kids are here and things like that, even though they're grown up. My dad died during COVID and I couldn't get home. All the scientists keep talking about pandemics being in our future. And I didn't want to be in this situation again. So I decided it was time to move back to Australia. It was a really big decision because I absolutely loved working at. The PRI, I loved the work, and Australia is a lot smaller country, and it's a lot further away than everywhere else when it comes to the investment community and responsible investment. So, I've made the decision that I wasn't going to be able to really replicate my kind of role at the PRI. There was no use doing that, but I wanted to stay involved in a number of things. So, I've really made up a bit of a portfolio career. So I work, as you said, with a number of investors on different issues. So I'm on the advisory board of Affirmative Investment Management. That is an impact investing fund that does social bonds and climate bonds. I'm on the advisory board of Quimbrook Infrastructure Partners. And that's an, it's an amazing organisation that looks at climate solutions, batteries, renewables, Etc. I'm also on the advisory board of, of Qualitas, which is a private debt fund, and it looks at the property sector. So I really wanted to work with people who were working on solutions to problems. Property is obviously an area where there's a lot of emissions, it's an important sector. But then finding solutions to climate's important. Social issues are important to me, so creating social bonds and ways to measure impact. Affirmative does that extremely well. And then I chair Global Compact because that's something that I'm really passionate about from a not-for-profit point of view. It's trying to stay involved in things that are both Australian and, and global, but really I think there's a lot of Australians trying to good, do good things in the world and support their work and taking it to the world as well is what I'm doing. So a whole lot of bits and pieces that I'm involved in rather than one sort of major thing.
0: Thank you for your response and my sympathies about your father passing away. So we're reaching the end of the interview and I have thoroughly enjoyed learning about your leadership experiences and great work you've been doing across all these years. Now, I'd like to talk about advice for the future generations, uh, especially those that maybe are seeking meaningful careers in ESG, sustainable finance, responsible investing. My two questions are, one is how can uh, folks that are new to the sector learn efficiently about ESG, sustainable finance? There's all sorts of news coming up every day. It's either... Political backlash or its positives about ESG. And it's very hard to filter that news. And then, second, is what can the next generation do to take all the good work that you and all your colleagues have done and move it forward in the right direction? Thank you.
1: Sure. Well, the good thing for the people who are starting in this space today and are interested in it is there is a lot of information in, out there. There's degrees in sustainable investing, there's organizations like the PRI or a whole lot of others who do a whole lot of work and training courses around responsible investment. There's lots of guidance on how you go about it. So there's probably too much information. So this is a good thing. It's a good place to start. As I said, it's also for young people today, an accepted and well-paid part of the investment industry. It's not seen as some fringe part. The other thing I'd say for young people is there's a complete war for talent in the responsible investment space. So now's the time to get get into this space. So there's plenty and plenty of information out there. And I think really the next stage for responsible investment is all about where's responsible investment today? We're not so much having to convince people about the issues. There's a lot of work that's happening around data and disclosures and measurements and making sure that we don't have greenwashing so that we can measure what people are saying they do. More, more a lot is happening around that sort of regulatory oversight, monitoring data information side of things. I, I'm more of an advocate, so those things are important, but they don't excite me as much as getting involved in issues. And so, people who are very analytically minded, in particular, who really can get into that data, build solutions, build ways that people can actually look under the hood and really see what's happening and be able to call out those who are greenwashing, which is a bit of a problem in industry and measure progress. And I think the main thing for young people is they have to understand the sense of urgency because if you look at where we are today and you take something like climate change and you think about net zero by 2050, I've got to say that it's pretty hard to say that we will get there with all of the information that we have at the moment. Now, of course, there could be amazing advances that happen. And of course, there can be major technologies that we haven't even thought about today that could be created and we might get there. But I'm pretty sceptical at this point in time that without that. So for young people. You have to be part of the solutions and you really have to understand the urgency and you have to stand up and push for change to happen quickly. And change can happen really slowly. So I think if you're not going to try and do that and be part of the solution, then this isn't the industry for you. We need people who are passionate about issues and are going to give their time and energy to really pushing them forward and making lots of noise about them.
0: Thank you very much for the valuable advice, for your passion, for sharing your experiences and for making a lot of noise across your career. I'm sure that the listeners really appreciate this interview. Have a great day.
1: Thank you. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thanks for the time.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat www.climatefinance.xyz See you at the next episode.